0: Redemption Church. Um, If you guys don't know me, my name is Reggie. And uh, this morning, I have the distinct privilege of uh, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ from the book of Micah. Uh, But to get started this morning, we're going to pray. So uh, would you guys pray with me? Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be together this morning, to be gathered around the name of Jesus. God, thank you for the ways in which we've already heard your word read and proclaimed where we've been able to pray together, uh, worship together by singing. And, And God, even now, as we take a moment and look into your word, specifically the book of Micah, God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds this morning, that you would draw us to yourself through Jesus being lifted high. God, in this moment, I am uniquely aware of my unworthiness as a messenger of the gospel, except for the grace of Jesus. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel. I pray that you would be honored and glorified. And God, we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, our precious Savior. Amen. So last week, Ben introduced us to the book of Micah and specifically helped us begin to practice the idea of um, gospel fluency as we're moving through, um, through Micah. And so this morning, we're actually going to start off uh, by reading Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, uh, feel free to do that. It will probably be on the screen behind us um, or in front of you as well. But Micah chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 9, and it says this, the word of the Lord They came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open. Like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations." All her carved images will be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. To the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah it has reached to the gate of my people, Jerusalem. Now, when we read that, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of good news in Micah. But there is. You know, one of the reasons that the book of Micah is difficult to understand is, is partly because of the structure, partly because of um, the nature of how harsh the language is that we just heard But the book of Micah throughout the book alternates back and forth between these messages, these oracles of woe and harsh judgment and the promises of hope. And and even though Micah is going back and forth at times and we hear harshness and we hear good things, the, the overall beauty of this book is that you can draw a straight line from Micah to Jesus, right? Looking back at Micah from this side of the resurrection from our side of the resurrection the connection of what Micah is saying to the person and the work and the death and resurrection of Jesus is so apparent and so obvious it's it's actually pretty beautiful right it, And In an effort for us to better understand Micah, part of what we have to realize is is that structure of Micah going back and forth between judgment and hope, like I said, and the first place that we see Micah going back and forth between judgment and hope is in chapter 1 and then chapter 2, right? Chapters 1 and 2 together, I think they're probably meant to be taken together, to be read together, because they give us that first taste of hope in the midst of judgment. And judgment like we just read. So what I want to do is just take a few minutes and walk through this passage before hopefully what I'm able to do is bring all of this home and point us to Jesus, sort of like Micah himself does, the end of chapter 2, right? So chapter 1 starts off with Micah, like we just read, telling us where he's from, when he was a prophet, it's probably about 700 years before the birth of Christ, maybe a little bit more than that. And he's telling us to whom he is addressing these words of both judgment and hope. Specifically, uh, the two different kingdoms that Israel had split into at this time. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Samaria being the capital of the northern kingdom that we read about. Jerusalem being the capital of the southern kingdom. right? And, and then he transitions to talking about how God is calling all of the people of earth to come and listen to what he's saying. It's, it sort of has this like um, allusion back to when God calls his people together at Mount Sinai, but he's calling the whole earth together to listen to the charges that he's about to levy. And it sort of starts off sounding like God is about to levy charges against all of the earth. He's bringing all of the earth together to listen to him. And it starts off sounding like God is going to judge all the nations around Israel, right? And during this time in history, we know that the Assyrians first and then the Babylonians were world powers who would have been seen as God's enemies. And so God's people are probably getting pretty excited when Micah first starts talking that the prophet has a message from God about all those people out there who are God's enemies and what's about to happen to them in real reality that's not that's not at all what micah is doing and in, in all reality that's not at all the charges that god is levying all right god in all of his holiness and power is really bringing a lawsuit against his own people verse 5 says this all this is for the transgression of jacob and for the sins of the house of israel what is the transgression of jacob is it not samaria And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Right? And if you jump down to verse seven, he goes on in verse seven to talk about carved images and idols. And that's the leading charge of Micah against God's people. It's the charge of idolatry, and specifically, idolatry in the high places. Specifically, he calls uh, Samaria and Jerusalem the high places. They're, like I said, the capital cities, the place of religious rituals in the place where God's people are no longer living in the way that God has called them to live and worshiping God in the way that God has called them to worship. right? The the charge that Micah levies is a charge of unfaithfulness. It's a charge of breaking the first commandment to have no other gods. It's a charge of worshiping that which is not worthy of worshiping. It's a charge of being like a husband who is unfaithful to his wife with prostitutes. And that's literally the language that Micah uses there. Right? But, but don't miss the fact that Micah's charge against these people would have been somewhat shocking. Considering that these people were probably expecting God to condemn those, to condemn those people out there. and Not the people in here. It's very much like what happens after David rapes Bathsheba. And murders her husband. The prophet Nathan comes to David and tells him the story of a rich man who has plenty of sheep, plenty of livestock, and yet he has a house guest. And so the rich man goes and steals the sole lamb of a poor man, a lamb that was actually a family pet to the poor man, and he kills that pet and serves it to his house guest as dinner. And so when David hears about this injustice, this is his response. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan turns it around and says to David, You are this man. You are this man. Right, What Nathan did to David was a wake-up call. It was a slap in the face. It was intended to be a call to repentance, to make him wake up to the reality of his own sin. And that's what Micah is doing. Micah is talking to God's people, wanting them to wake up to the reality of their sin, the reality of the ways that they have been idolatrous, the, the reality of the ways that they have acted unjustly, the reality of the ways that they are not living As though God intended them to live. And that's exactly what Micah wants to see happen. Micah wants to see repentance. He wants to see them turn in faith. And that's exactly why God is issuing such harsh promises of judgment in verses 6 and 7. Promises of destruction and exile. Because Micah wants to see God's people turn away from their idolatry and turn to God in repentance and faith. Like it says this about Micah in verse 8, if you read it. For, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. That's pretty unusual language. Mourning like jackals making lamentation like jackals, mourning like ostriches. I don't know what sounds ostriches make, but it's a pretty unusual thing to say. But it's striking because it probably describes the sort of behavior that would happen during public mourning, right? During a public funeral. It's like a public mourning rite. And that's how Micah feels about this message that he's been sent to proclaim. The message that Israel and Judah will be ravished and destroyed because of their idolatry. Right? He grieves. His heart is breaking because of the judgment that is coming on his people. Right? Because the message here is that God takes sin seriously. And idolatry is not okay. And God is going to deal with the sin of his people. And there's no glee in this message from Micah. There's no, there's no glee at all. It's a message of doom. And so for Micah, there's heartache. And I wish that I and I wish that we as a church, I wish that we as a church in this nation would grieve over the sin and idolatry and injustice of our world in the same way that Micah is grieving over the sin and the idolatry of these people. Like, have you ever grieved over something in that way to where it hurts and to where you want to see the world change, where you want to see things be different? I remember when I was around five or six years old, it's one of my earliest memories actually, but my grandfather, who was such a huge presence in my family, like grandfathers often are, um, died, passed away from cancer. And my family wasn't really a church-going family. And uh, my parents did send me to vacation Bible school. We did go to church at Christmas and Easter and things like this when I was growing up. But, But I can remember as a young boy, praying after my grandfather died that God would raise my grandfather from the dead. Like I had heard about God raising Jesus from the dead, so I couldn't understand why God wouldn't raise my grandfather from the dead. Obviously, I, I didn't really know what I was asking God, but I did know that I missed my grandfather. I did know that I was grieving. I did know that it hurt that my grandfather was gone and things were not like they were supposed to be. And I was sad. And for me, it was one of my first introductions to how broken and messed up our world is. Right, and, and Micah, in understanding how messed up the idolatry of the people around him is, and recognizing how harsh the judgment of God is about to be, Micah grieves. And Micah hurts. Church, may we be more like Micah in grieving the brokenness in our own midst, the brokenness in our world, the brokenness in our city, rather than just pointing it out and condemning it and complaining about it. Why would we not want the world to know that God will one day redeem all the brokenness? And our grief and lamentation is one way that we are joining in what God is doing to express that there is hope and that there is redemption that's coming. Church, I wish that we would grieve like Micah grieved over the brokenness in our midst and the brokenness in our world. If you move on and look at verses 10 through 15, we've got some really interesting things going on here in this passage. I'm not going to read them all. Um, but verses 10 through 15 in the original Hebrew are puns. So they are not meant to be funny, but Micah intends them to warn the cities of the coming judgment, the judgment that's coming their way. I, I, I won't read them all because I really want to get to verse 16 because verse 16 is very much like verse 8. And Micah's call to repentance, but let me just give you an example of the puns. In verse ten, we read this in English. It says, "Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all, in Bethlehem roll yourselves in the dust." In the Hebrew, it sounds more like this, even though it's not the same, um, you know, alphabet, not the same language. But in Hebrew, it sounds like, "Don't tell it at Tear Town, tear not at all, grovel in the dust." At Dust Town, so like I said, they're puns. The names of these towns, like Gath and Bethlehem Ephra, sound like the other Hebrew words that Micah is using—a word for tell, a word for dust, and things like this. And he's not trying to be funny. What he's trying to say, I think, is that even the very names of your homes and towns are a kind of prophecy of the doom coming against you because of your idolatry. He goes on in verse 16 to say this, Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Right, And Micah is once again actually talking about funeral rites. He's talking about public mourning, and he's saying, I'm weeping and grieving for you, and I want you to join me in that weeping and mourning and grieving. I want you to join me in mourning over sin. Because if you don't mourn over your sin, if you don't respond in grief and lament and repentance, then you will be left to mourn instead in the wake of judgment. Right? Micah is saying, mourn now or mourn later. Mourn now over your sin, mourn now over the judgment that's coming your way, or mourn now over your sin and repentance. Mourn later when judgment falls, judgment from which there will be no rescue, or mourn over your sin and turn in repentance and faith to God. I think that's what Micah is trying to communicate here. If we move forward to Micah chapter 2, I'm gonna read just the first three verses here, because it pretty much epitomizes where idolatry always is. Leads. Listen to it. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. If we just look at these verses for a moment, what we see is that there were people in Micah's community, God's people, God's people, who spent their nights inventing new ways to prey upon the weak. And when day dawned, they put their schemes into effect simply because they had the power to do it. They followed through on their wicked schemes in order to willingly disenfranchise and hurt others for their own benefit, out of their own greed and covetousness. Right? And notice, take note in verse 2, that the oppression here is economic in its character. He's talking about what we would call ruthless and predatory business practices driven by their covetousness. It says they covet fields And seize them. Do you know the story of King Ahab and Naboth from 1 Kings chapter 21? Do you know the story? King Ahab had a uh, palace, and right outside of his palace, there was a vineyard that belonged to Naboth. It was a great vineyard, it was an inheritance to Naboth's family. And because it was right outside of his palace, King Ahab wanted this vineyard for a vegetable garden. That's what 1 Kings 21 says. So Ahab goes to Naboth and says, I want your vineyard. Give it to me. I'll pay you for it or I'll trade you another vineyard or other land for your vineyard. And Naboth says, absolutely not. This vineyard is an inheritance from my family and I'm not going to give it up. And so Ahab, like a good king does, he goes inside and he lays down on his bed and he turns away from everybody and he starts whining. And he gets really sullen, and he won't talk to anybody, and he won't eat, and he acts like a child because he can't have this vineyard that he wants. And so his wife comes in, and she helps him to devise a scheme where Naboth is eventually accused of blasphemy, stoned because of that blasphemy against, that supposed blasphemy against God and against the king, and then Ahab is able to turn around and take the vineyard from Naboth. Now that happened over a hundred years before Micah's probably was speaking and before this was written down, maybe even longer than that. It was well after the time of Ahab. But God's people are still doing the same things. They're coveting and they're taking. The powerful were preying upon the weak so that they took away the inheritance of the poor. Now, the word inheritance in verse 2 is pretty important, and it's worth noting, especially from a cultural standpoint, because the inheritance of God's people was not so much a sum of money, but a portion of the promised land that God had given them when he brought them out of exile from Egypt into the promised land, right? And so their inheritance was the very land that God had given them. And so, those with power because of their covetousness were literally scheming to take away that which God had given to his people. God's people were stealing from one another to take what God had given one another. It's, it's particularly wicked. And so, in verse 3, God speaks a word of judgment, and it says that he is devising disaster from which they cannot remove their necks. Now, remember back in verse 1, it says, it says that it's the wicked who are devising schemes. But in verse 3, it says that God is devising justice and judgment for his people. All right, and here's what Micah is getting at. Here's part of what I think Micah wants to communicate to the people that he's speaking to. And it's a lesson we should probably learn as well. And It's just that when we as the people of God devise what God considers to be evil deeds... God devises what we would consider to be evil consequences, but in all reality is just just judgment. But there's something else more than that I want us to see in this transition from chapter one to chapter two. It was true in Micah's day, and it's still true today. And it's this: idolatry and injustice are joined at the hip. They go together. Our idolatry, the idolatry idolatry that shows up in our life, does not just affect us. Idolatry and injustice are joined at the hip. And Micah 1, Micah strikes out at the idolatry of, of Israel and of Judah and of God's people itself. In Micah 2, he strikes at the result of that idolatry, which is injustice. And so in Micah's day, their worship of Baal or Baal and the high places that Micah mentions in chapter 1 led directly to the injustice of chapter 2. Right? In our society, we don't worship Baal. We don't worship physical idols in high places. But we do worship lots of things that are not worthy of worship. I think in our culture, money and sex and power are probably the big gods of our day. If we're honest, though, most of us will look to any functional Savior that will give us meaning and significance and pursue it as if it was a God that could actually do something for us. The reality is quite different than that, though, that we are never less human than when we are worshiping idols because we were made by God to worship Him and Him alone. And idol worship turns us into something grotesque and something less than human. And worshiping idols will lead us straight down the road to injustice. Just like it did for God's people. I mentioned this a while back while we were working through Amos earlier this year. But an author and scholar that I follow named Caitlin Scheiss said this, There's a reason the prophets so consistently connect idolatry and social injustice. In the end, idols will always demand things of you, that you can only give them by exploiting other people. Another way to frame this is to say that where injustice reigns, God is not being worshipped. Something else is being worshipped instead. And in a society where anything can be worshipped, wealth, race, power, status, beauty, sex, significance, popularity, education, a very nation itself political parties, and political ideologies, there's a 100% chance that somebody somewhere is being exploited because idols are being worshipped. The first couple chapters of Micah, we actually see the good news that God is coming in power to ruin the oppressive idolatry that God's people have chased after. We see that God is just and will discipline his people and all who act unjustly. But that's good news. That's good news. If we get to Micah chapter 3, which we'll look at next week, there's actually a place where Micah says that it's in your exile that you're going to be redeemed. It's in your discipline, when God is disciplining you, and God is acting against our idolatry and our injustice, that there's redemption we see that God is just and will discipline his people and all who act unjustly and that's good news because God acts for justice and God acts to not be second to any false god that we would worship in his place right so ultimately what we need to see from Micah is that it's good news that God is out to oppose our idolatry it's good news that God cares about justice. It's good news that God has made a way for idols to be defeated and for justice to be served. Micah chapter 2 ends with some really great news. I mentioned that Micah draws a straight line to Jesus. And listen to what Micah two twelve and 13 say. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Do you see the picture that Micah paints here? Micah speaks of a deliverer, a a shepherd, one who will offer hope, right? In verse 12, it's the image of God, the good shepherd, who assembles his people back together like a flock in its pasture. And in verse 13, God is described as a conquering king who breaches the siege of his people and goes out before the people as their leader. He comes out from among them, and he goes up before them to lead them, right? We know looking back, like I said, on this side of the resurrection, that Micah is talking about Jesus, of whom the whole second half of his prophecy is primarily designed to speak about. Jesus said of himself, we know this, we know Jesus said this, I am the good shepherd. And it's so amazing to me, and it's so beautiful that right here in the midst of a word of judgment and justice and discipline, that Micah is pointing us straight to God's redemption and grace. I think it's beautiful, right? Even though in Micah it doesn't feel like it, there's some really good news. And Micah starts off by reminding us that God deals with sinners in one of two ways, either deserved justice or undeserved grace. In Micah's day, both Samaria and Judah clearly deserve God's judgment for their idolatry and oppression and corruption They lived out this wickedness while continuing to offer sacrifices to God, going about their religious rituals, expecting that because they had the covenant promises of God, expecting that because they were the covenant people of God, that God would accept them and protect them. But in His great grace, God sent the prophet Micah to confront their sin and to call them to repentance. While God is a righteous judge who carries out deserved judgment, He is also a merciful Savior who gives undeserved grace. The specific good news Micah presented was the promise of a shepherd king who would gather the faithful remnant, who would care for them, and who would defeat their greatest enemy. But as we talk about deserved justice... As we talk about undeserved grace, let's be reminded that from the moment of his very first breath, Jesus marched towards the cross because God is unwilling to compromise his justice in order to deliver his grace. On the cross, as Jesus is paying our debt, God did not close his eyes to our myriad violations of his just requirements. In order to extend grace. God is a perfectly holy God. And he can't even consider putting up with that which is unjust and unrighteous. And instead of putting up with it, God acts. But he acts by Jesus going to the cross. In Micah, God's people did not repent. They did not hear the message of Micah. And so they bore the weight of their offenses through exile. But Jesus, but Jesus bore the weight of our offenses on the cross and defeated our idols when he rose from the grave. If there is no breaking of God's just requirements, there is no need for forgiveness. And it's vital to recognize and remember that the cross not only extends God's forgiveness, it upholds. His justice, right? And it's on the cross that grace and justice come together. And that means that we as the people of God cannot celebrate and proclaim the message of God's grace while we do what God would never do, which is to close our eyes to the injustice in the world around us. The cross forbids me. The cross forbids you. The cross forbids us. To close our eyes to any form of injustice, whether it be personal, corporate, governmental, ecclesiastical, systemic, or any other way. The cross demands that we as a community be present, active, and vocal in our proclamation of the good news. The good news of God's grace is that grace and justice come together on the cross. So let's celebrate that. Let's celebrate God's grace. Let's celebrate the way in which God has worked for justice. Let's celebrate the way in which God is out for people to have grace. Let's work for justice. Let's extend the good news of Jesus that grace and justice have met together on the cross, both verbally and indeed as we make the real Jesus known. in the way that Ben has taught us over the last few weeks, by being honest about our failures, by loving like Jesus loves, by serving the city for the good of all and by inviting everybody into the family of God. Guys, the good news, the good news is that grace and justice have met on the cross and that God has provided a way for us to be rightly related to him. Let me beg you, let me urge us to hear what Micah is telling us this morning. God cares about grace. God cares about justice. Grace and justice have met together, and God has done something incredible. And he's invited us to be a part of it. We're going to close in a time of response this morning. We do every Sunday here at Redemption. Um, As we respond in just a minute, the band is going to come back up and give us an opportunity to worship through singing we have an opportunity during this time as well to respond by sitting where we are, by reflecting, by praying, by dealing with whatever God has laid on our hearts and minds this morning. We have an opportunity to continue to respond in worship by giving. If you're a part of Redemption Church, there's a giving basket in the back where you can put your tithes and offerings. There's also some instructions on other ways to give. Recognizing all, and, and all of that giving, in our, and that's a response of worship. We have an opportunity to respond by taking communion on either side of the stage. Um, There's a place where you can come down these side aisles, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was given for us, and so remember the blood of Christ that was shed for us. The reason we do that every Sunday is that it's a visible way for us to do what Scripture says, to remember what Christ has done, and to proclaim to one another that we believe it. So if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, whether you're a member of this body or not, we invite you to come and take communion and to remember what Christ has done and proclaim that it's good news and that we believe it. If you really can do that, we invite you to come and do that with us. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll continue on in that time of response. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Micah, God, which seems harsh, which is hard to understand at times. But God, thank you for the good news that we find in the midst of Micah. God, I pray that that good news would be impressed upon our hearts, that the reality of your grace and your justice would transform us, would change us in the way that we worship you and the way that we leave this place and interact with the world around us. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his work on our behalf. God, thank you for his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. God, we ask all these things in his incredible name. Amen.